I got to say, though, if you cringe every time you hear a coach talk about doubters, this must have been a really long 17 years for you. I have a bro- you think I have a broken uh, a broken brow? Uh, maybe. I don't know. It's the photo we have on the website of you is from when you were like 23 years old. Oh, well, that's good. That that way, the all the cringing hasn't left a, a thing on my head. All right, let's do this. It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Thanks, Dave, and welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We appreciate you downloading us and giving us a listen as we talk about Week 8 of the 2016 Division Three football season, the podcast for October 24th of 2016. And now, yeah, there's just three weeks left in the regular season. It's the time where the uh, playoff pontificating and prognosticating are particularly premature, and we can have more of an informed discussion. As such, uh, as we bring in Keith... Uh, you know, officially, of course, no automatic bids clinched as of yet, so there's a lot of things up in the air. But uh, already, if you're waiting on one of those six at-large bids or hoping for one of those six at-large bids, there's a lot of teams uh, who've penciled themselves into those spots already. Yeah, and I think that's going to be the problem when we start to discuss teams like uh, Wisconsin-Platteville. Do they have a chance as a two-loss team, having lost to two of the, the top teams in the country? Um you just go down this list really quickly of, of who's out there, who's trailing a team that's likely to, to earn an automatic bid and uh, and who's in the driver's seat for one of these six uh, automatic bids. You still you have the Harden-Simmons, East Texas Baptist winner. You have St. John's. You have Wisconsin-Oshkosh, which uh, just beat Platteville on Saturday to sort of take control of second place <laughs> in the WIAC, which yeah. sounds like a, a weird way to phrase it. Um, you have Wheaton in that group, which Wheaton's already lost to North uh, North Central. So if uh, if North Central goes and, and wins out, Wheaton has a and Wheaton does as well. They have a great case for Pool C. You have Hobart and St. Lawrence. If Hobart upsets St. Lawrence, St. Lawrence would drop into that group of uh, of one loss teams. Uh, there's Case Western, which doesn't even play Thomas Moore. So one of those teams wins the pack. The other one has a chance in Pool C. And and those are just six teams off top. We're not even talking about the regular group of, of conferences that will eventually have a winner and a one-loss team like the North Coast, which right now has three teams in the mix in Denison, Wabash, Wittenberg. Um, the Empire 8 has a bunch of teams in the mix. The NJAC still has a bunch, although those conferences, those teams play each other a lot. Point being, if you're a, a Wisconsin Platteville fan or if you're a fan of another team that has a loss and is hoping for some luck, you got to root against a lot of these other teams and, and you want to root for some scenarios, some unlikely things to happen in weeks 9, 10, and 11. And we're going to talk about some of those things throughout the course of this podcast. One of the other things that I just wanted to bring up here at the top, too, um, you know, we've kind of developed into this little bit of shorthand. Keith and I have been talking about Division Three football playoffs for 17 years. Uh, we've been talking for I, – I should just put a note on my wall here how many seasons this is of the, of the podcast because I've already forgotten. I think this is 10 maybe 11. Um, point being, yes, we understand all of those teams would have to win out uh, in order to finish the regular season with one loss. When we're talking about this sort of playoff prognostications, yeah, just understand that we know that. Uh, we certainly know that. This is not news. So uh, yeah. there, when there's a possibility that they might not run the table, we will certainly bring that up. But, you know, we're, we're kind of making assumptions because otherwise there's, there's three whole weeks of games left. Yeah, and I guess if you want to back it out even further, you know, we assume that everybody listening is some sort of diehard or medium hard, whatever the halfway through a diehard is. Um, you know, there's 32 playoff teams, uh, 25 automatic bids, six at-large bids. One bid is Pool B. That's for a team that uh, is not in an automatic bid conference, but they set those aside so that uh, that team has a fair shot at getting in the playoffs. So, um we do understand the, the the field and all the, and I guess we can get into the specifics of uh, how the field is created um, as we get a little closer. But generally, we do just dive right into the the playoff prognostication because that's what people uh, want from us. Because uh, we kind of step back and take a look at the whole national picture, and I think it really got interesting this past weekend. Yeah, Uh, we're still a week away from getting the NCAA's regional rankings, uh, and those are our best indicator of where your at-large prospects kind of lie on the spectrum. 
Um, the Division Three committee is made up of four regional committees, and there's a, a coach or an athletic director or maybe a, a commissioner or assistant commissioner that represents each of the conferences in that region. Uh, each of those uh, re, uh, regional uh, ranking committees puts together a regional ranking, which goes up to the national committee, which is made up of a couple of members of each of those regions. Um, not to get too deep into the weeds here, but basically the reason why we're looking for those, which will come out uh, a week from Wednesday, uh, at least that's when they're scheduled to come out, uh, is because these use the same ranking criteria that the, are also used on Selection Sunday to select the teams and to seed them. Even though, if you're new to Division Three, by the way, yeah, there's seedings. The NCA just doesn't tell us what they are, uh, and they try to pretend there aren't any. Anyway, uh, let's see. Uh, as we often mention, you want to be in a position where you're the top at-large candidate from your, your region. That at least gets you in the discussion. So if you're in the West, for example where there's a ton of potential at-large teams, you want to be, uh, you know, I think at this, at the the way things are going, looking right now, Oshkosh would be the first team in consideration, assuming Whitewater and Oshkosh both went out, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, you guarantee that Oshkosh is going to get talked about. And if you're St. John's, which is sitting probably behind them at this point, St. John's doesn't get discussed until Oshkosh gets in the field. And if you're Platteville, which we would probably presume would be behind St. John's. Platteville doesn't get discussed until both St. John's and Oshkosh get in the field. So when you're looking at that sort of thing, uh, when those rankings come out, just kind of look, see who's going to get the automatic bids in the, you know, each of the conferences in that region, kind of scratch them off. And then that's what the board looks like. Um, but, you know, as we mentioned, just six at-large teams from the entire nation. There's no guarantee your team would even get in as the top candidate from your region. That's, where it gets crazy because the committee could very easily take oh let's say three teams from the west right they could take two from the north one from the south and never take an east team and that is a very real scenario yeah and, and we should really specify uh, because i saw greg thomas our um in-house bracketologist talking about this um i think on a top 25 thread somewhere this week uh in any case and he, and he made a really great point that i should reiterate here and it's that um even though the regional rankings are done by region, the playoffs are no longer rigidly regional yeah. in the sense that um, you, you are likely to get a, a, um, a number one seed maybe from each region in the sense that um, each area. <laughs> yeah, because there's, you know, because of the, there's a 500 mile um, limit on uh on bus travel and once it goes over that 500 miles the nta has to pick up the tab so the the mandate given to the selection committee is to make as few um trips of over 500 miles as possible at least in the first round um but what well, we are getting so deep in the weeds here if you're brand new to this i am so sorry there's no good way to dive into how the division three football playoff process works i'm sorry but I think it is good to reiterate it here in week eight so that we don't deal with the same questions week nine, 10, and 11. We can just dive right into the weeds. Um, the, the, to finish the point that, that Greg's making and that I should be reiterating more concisely is that there's, there's no longer only one number one seed from the West or from the South or whatever. So if the best four teams in the country happen to be um, or the top four teams on selection criteria happen to be Mountain Union, Whitewater, St. Thomas, Mary Harden, Baylor. It's okay that Whitewater and St. Thomas are from the West region. They'll find a way to make uh, eight team groupings to that around each number one seed so that the 32 team bracket is more balanced than it used to be. I think it's still not quite totally balanced between the West and the East. You'll still find situations, and, and this is what Saturday opened up for Harden Simmons, which played a tight game at Mary Harden Baylor and, and uh, uh, lost 20 to 15. You still have the situations on the islands in D3 out West and in the South where those teams get stuck traveling. Is it a problem or is Harden Simmons in a situation this year, Pat, where they could be one of the top 10 teams in the country, but still get stuck having to go to Mary Harden Baylor in round one? Yeah, that's an absolute possibility. It's not quite a hundred percent certainty. Some years, it really is. Um, but you know, if you go back a little further, 
Uh, Harden Simmons played Wittenberg in the first round one year, for example, uh, and that's not impossible this year. So if you're a, a Harden Simmons fan, for example, uh, what you want to do, you want to root for Hendricks. Uh, Hendricks is a team that is a contender for the championship of the Southern Athletic Association. They won it last year. Uh, the uh, There were two places Hendricks could have gone last year. One of them was Mary Harden Baylor which would have broken up that first-round matchup. The other was Huntington, and since Huntington won the USA South, Hendricks went there. It was not a flight. It was under 500 miles, and Harden-Simmons went to Mary Harden-Baylor, also a flight under 500 miles. But if Hendricks wins the SAA and, and there's nobody else within 500 miles of them other than Mary Harden-Baylor, then, yeah, I think you can expect Hendricks to go to Mary Harden-Baylor and someone flies in to play Harden-Simmons or possibly Harden-Simmons flies out to play somebody else. Um, so if you're a Harden-Simmons fan, root for Hendricks. Root against Huntington uh, to kind of change up that scenario from last year because I really do think that the committee, if there's an opportunity for them to do right by Texas, to do right by the West Coast without it costing the NCAA any extra money, they're going to do it if they can do it. So if that that's certainly a scenario where it would work out. Yeah, and, and I think after what we saw Saturday where Harden-Simmons put up a, a really solid performance defensively against a Mary Harden-Baylor team that had scored more than 50 points against everyone else that played this season, it it would logic would seem to dictate that Harden-Simmons is deserving of at least a, uh, if not a home game in round one, um, at least a, a chance to avoid what's potentially the, the number one team in the country. Now that all presumes that Harden-Simmons beats East Texas Baptist, which is a game still on their schedule and certainly uh, not a gimme. So we are getting a little ahead of ourselves, but that's what we do here, and that's why you guys listen to us, right? Yeah. Uh, taking up the whole logic thread for a second, I think logic would probably also dictate or at least suggest that wisconsin Platteville is one of the best uh, six at-large teams in the country. Uh, so I was at Oshkosh this weekend uh, when the Titans beat them 22-13, and after the game, the predominant discussion was – uh, you know, other than why did Platteville run the ball so much was uh, will Platteville make the playoffs? And uh, we usually take our Twitter question on this podcast a little bit later in the rundown, but we might as well hit this uh, up at this point because uh, it's definitely relevant to the discussion um, at Dunkel uh, D. Kunkel, excuse me, 65 writes, any chances the Wyack gets three representatives in the playoffs? And yes, Wyack. It's Wyack for goodness sake. It's not Weak anybody. Um, anyway. Wait, did the poll put that to bed, or did, did the conference actually come out and put it to bed? No, I, I didn't hear from the conference office, but uh, everybody in Oshkosh was – it wasn't everybody. It was funny. I walked into one uh, – the uh, the kind of the game management portion of the press box where you had the, the stat crew people and that sort of thing. And uh, we were having a discussion about it because someone said, well, of course, obviously it's WIAC. And as the guy said that, you know, the student sitting next to him said, oh, really? I thought it was WIAC. See – it's a, exactly how these things happen. But, uh, yeah, we're going to continue saying WIAC, of course. Uh, I might say WIAC uh, uh, on occasion just to be obnoxious. Um, uh, I, I guess it, it's possible I could be obnoxious. That happens. Um, what were we talking about? Oh, three teams from the uh, WIAC getting in the playoffs? Correct, yes. And I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry I uh, derailed you there. It's okay. I think I derailed myself. Uh, yeah, definitely. We're saying there's a chance. Uh, it's happened once before. Uh, the Empire 8 sent three teams to the playoffs in 2007. Uh, of course, the reward for one of those teams that was Ithaca got sent to Mount Union in the first round. St. John Fisher reached the round of eight. It's definitely not impossible that the uh, committee could select three teams that way. Uh, and it should be noted that in 2007, there were three fewer automatic bids and there was one more at-large bid. And then, Keith, I, I need to thank you because the only reason I was able to find that quickly at all is because I, I found that spreadsheet that you had with all of that info. Well, it only took me about four years to actually sit down and do the spreadsheet, but it does go back to 1999 and it does make things uh, real easy for us to, uh, to, to figure out um, the precedent for certain situations. And look, we've discussed this WIAC sending three teams now the past couple of years and uh it's been oshkosh in that seat before it's been platteville in that in that seat as well and for one reason or another the teams didn't um either hold up their end of the bargain in in i can think of one year where, where oshkosh finished six and four um but another time i think you, you sometimes will get that eight and two team and the numbers just won't bear it out so i think Part of the situation for Platteville is just hoping that some of these other Pool C 
strong candidates fall off over the next few weeks. Last year's a, a great example. Actually, I think uh, Platteville deserved to go to the playoffs last year. I think we projected it that way even. Uh, but the committee chose Whitworth, which had a 9-1 and record and a sub-500 strength of schedule ahead of Platteville, which was, let me see here, 8-2 and two with a 529 strength of schedule. Platteville is going to probably grade out pretty close to that this year. The WIAC as a whole is a little bit better, so everybody's strength of schedule in the WIAC is going to be a little bit better when all is said and done. But, you know, at the moment, uh, one thing to keep in mind, too, uh, you can go on our site and you can see where teams stand in terms of strength of schedule right now. Uh, you go to the news menu and pick out strength of schedule. It's somewhat self-explanatory. But the thing that I'm going to explain that maybe isn't as self-explanatory at the moment is that uh, these numbers only include the games that have been played so far. So uh, Platteville, for example, has the eighth best strength of schedule in Division Three according to these numbers. But they haven't played Lacrosse, and they haven't played Eau Claire, and they haven't played Stout. I, I think I think I got the end of Platteville's schedule correctly. So those numbers are going to dip. You just got to keep in mind those things kind of as the season goes along as well. Some of those things definitely change. And with three weeks left in the season, that's, uh, you know, almost a third of the season. That's a good opportunity for some of these numbers to move. Yeah, well, Oshkosh and Platteville are the two playoff uh, potential teams right now. Maybe St. John Fisher in the mix as well, who are... um, Top 10, top 15 strength of schedule, not strength of schedule, I'm sorry, toughest schedule. I'm looking at the just the uh, the NCAA cumulative opposition, which is not the same as the strength of schedule formula. But it does give us a good idea that um, that that Platteville and Oshkosh have played two very difficult schedules, including playing each other and also having played Whitewater. Indeed. Uh, we could talk a lot more about playoff prognostication. And, you know, as this time of season continues to roll along uh, we'll talk more about it on twitter you can certainly reach out to uh, me at at d3football um you know ask reasonable twitter questions and you'll get reasonable twitter responses um you know if you come to us on selection sunday uh complaining about your team not getting in and you're obnoxious about it yeah you know you might get obnoxiousness from us we try to embody the quaker philosophy that's not true at all uh, but it's funny though. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Especially considering that's one of those teams that uh, has had fans be pretty obnoxious at us. Hence the humor. I'm not talking about Earlham. I'd also like to take this time to mention that the Around the Nation podcast is currently sponsored by Fill in the Blank. You could be reaching an audience full of decision makers in Division Three football. Those are coaches who need new equipment, who can uh, influence decisions to replace turf, uh, you know, weight rooms, locker rooms, all sorts of things by sponsoring uh, the Around the Nation podcast. Keith and I would be waxing poetic about your product right here before going to break. So think about it and uh, drop me an email at pat.coleman at d3sports.com. Uh, this is the part of the pitch where I tell you some great number of listeners. And uh, the one I picked out this week is this season's podcast, Keith, have been listened to more than 10,000 times. People listen. It's, it's wor- kind of hard to believe. It's worth us being awake at 1.30 in the morning on Monday morning finishing this thing up or 2.30 in the morning your time. It's true. It, it does make it all worth it knowing that somebody actually listens. 10,000 somebody's actually listened. So if you're not sponsoring our podcast, and I know at the moment you're not, you're missing it. And moving on with the rest of our rundown, we're going to start with game balls. And uh, my game ball goes to Jimmy Lauer, Brendan Flaherty, and the rest of the horses on the Stevenson defense as the Mustangs ran past Delaware Valley on Saturday by a score of 19 to nothing. Now, Delaware Valley does not get shut out often. In fact, uh, they haven't been since 2002, which was G.A. Mangus' first season. And, and for those of you who don't know, that's first of all, that's two head coaches ago for the Aggies and before, shall we say, Delaware Valley was good. Uh, Delval this season has been living by the deep ball on offense and Stevenson held the Aggies to 52 yards passing and 115 yards of total offense. In fact, Stevenson won this game with just 192 yards of its own. Thanks in no small part to Lauer returning an interception for a touchdown and Flaherty's forced fumble at the Delaware Valley 14. So, uh, Stevenson remains unbeaten at seven and zero and is living up to, if not beyond all preseason expectations right now. 
My game ball goes to a team that was in a very similar situation, didn't score a whole lot, didn't have a whole lot of offense of its own, but the defense carried the day. And uh, that started with uh, linebacker Skylar Williamson and uh, the rest of the St. Lawrence defense for proving that defense itself is not a lost art. Williamson had 20 tackles and the Saints put up their fourth shutout of the season. Uh, but this one wasn't as comfortable as the others since it was just an 8-0 win against Merchant Marine. It was the lowest scoring game in Division Three this season, according to our, our own Frank Rossi. And it came against a team that has run the ball 80 or more times in a game three times this season. St. Lawrence was ready for it. Merchant Marine was averaging about four and a half yards per carry and was converting 54% on third downs this season. And the Saints held the Mariners to 3.2 yards per carry for 17 on third. And considering that Hobart also eked out a win on Saturday in another low-scoring game to keep the Liberty League up for grabs in the Week 10, November 5th clash with the Saints, uh, that's interesting. But St. Lawrence has something potentially more valuable at stake if its defense continues to play like this. With no undefeated NJAC teams left, the Saints are in the mix with teams like Alfred and Stevenson that you just mentioned uh, to be high seeds on the opposite side of a playoff group of eight that probably features Mount Union at the top. We'll probably be talking more about St. Lawrence coming up in just a few minutes. But, uh, let's look at uh, teams on the rise. And for a team on the rise on my top 25 ballot, I actually had to take a pretty close look at who I voted for last week and this week because um, some of the big changes that other voters made, I didn't need to make. Uh, and I suspect maybe, uh, maybe you didn't either. I already had Harden Simmons in my top 10, so I didn't need to move them, and nobody else really took a big jump. So I'm kind of looking at the other end of my ballot where I found some room or maybe made some room for uh, Frostburg State. So as long as there's that jumble in the NJAC standings, there's probably going to be a bit of jumble in NJAC teams in our top 25 as well, and it kind of reflects out. We have Salisbury holding on to number 19 ranking, Wesley just outside the top 25, Frostburg getting a handful of votes, and uh, Rowan appearing on two ballots. So... Uh, there's still some, uh, get the drinking game ready, folks. There's still some clarity to be gained here the last three ding, weeks ding, ding. of the regular season. No, that, that didn't work. That didn't work at all. I have two glasses here on my desk, but they're both empty. Um, yeah. So we, uh, two, uh, clarity to be gained here the last three weeks of the regular season. I don't think we're going to edit that out. We'll keep going. Um, but we had another person switch their number one vote this week, uh, someone moving from Mountain Union to Mary Harden Baylor. And uh, not that we go by those NCAA strength of schedule stats as top 25 voters or that we go by any particular SOS numbers uh, when we do this. We provide the record of each team on a team's schedule and let the voter decide for themselves how to deal with it. But regardless, no matter how you look at it, Mary Harden-Baylor currently has the 15th strongest schedule in Division Three by the NCAA numbers. Mount Union's is uh, number 172 at the moment. Yeah, Pat, like like you, I didn't have many big movers on my ballot this week. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of place for Platteville or Harden-Simmons to go if you already had them at the lower part of, of the top 10. Um, you know, they lost to teams that were ranked just a few spots higher than them. So, you know, where do you where do you put them? I mean, yeah. there, I, I feel like there's a big crease, I guess, after somewhere around where Johns Hopkins is, um, you know, maybe Alfred, somewhere around that 11, 12 spot. And so for me, uh, Harden Simmons and Platteville didn't move far at all. But I did slide Stevenson into the teens now that we've seen the Mustangs put together a thorough performance like St. Lawrence put it putting together uh, one of this week's 11 shutouts. Here's another team, though, that I'm starting to keep an eye on, and this is a, a riser like you I found some room for at the bottom of the poll. Uh, actually, last week, I believe, was the first time I voted for him, but Western New England. Saturday's win was the 19th in the past 20 games for the Golden Bears, with the only loss a 52-20 playoff shellacking at Johns Hopkins in the first round last season. Western New England is heading for a November 5th showdown. A lot of November 5th showdowns. That Week 10 is going to be huge. Uh, they're heading for one against uh, also unbeaten Salve Regina. And although neither the Golden Bears or Seahawks look particularly impressive in their wins on Saturday against Endicott or MIT, for those of you looking forward to the 32-team bracket challenge in November with the right <laughs> matchup, Western New England could be a sleeper. For now, it's just a rare NFC team, uh, NEFC team, NFC, that's what we call it. It's an NFC team, a rare one, garnering top 25 votes. Looking at the uh, other direction, teams that'll take a fall. Uh, there were some obvious uh, teams that needed to fall, obviously, after Saturday. 
uh, Rowan, which was riding the Christopher Newport win into the top 25. They might have slid a spot even if they hadn't lost, just because beating a team always looks less impressive when more people do it. Uh, this past week, for example, Frostburg beat Christopher Newport and made Rowan's win uh, look less unique. But then Rowan, of course, also lost to Wesley and uh, made that whole minute discussion a little bit uh, overshadowed, shall we say. For Frostburg, which has won five straight and is now 6-1 and one overall, I would have liked to vote for them, Pat, but I couldn't get over the 43-7 loss to Wesley. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, as far as pinpointing a team that'll, that'll take a fall this week, more than just kind of picking one, I was pleased to see the vote breakdown when the full top 25 came out on Sunday. It wasn't just me. The whole top 25 panel seemed to only have 22 teams that it could really deem worthy. The split on teams after Denison, which is the 22nd team in the poll, is vast. There weren't many top 25 losses this week, as we mentioned, but Rose Holman knocked Franklin out of the top 25 and finally got off the hook all the voters who were ignoring the head-to-head Thomas Moore result. The engineers uh, ran 115 plays. There were 15 of 27, believe it or not, on third downs, but didn't take their final lead on the Grizzlies until 21 seconds remained. They also busted the uh, HCAC, the we don't do HCAC. I don't, I don't think believe. so. No. Uh, we just call it the Heartland. Yeah. Uh, that conference r- remains wide open with a big Mount St. Joseph Franklin game looming next week. Never mind that there's also a Heartland conference in Division Two, which is really uh, really grinds my gears. Uh, although I suspect they were probably around first because our Heartland conference has only had this name for about uh, 16, 17 years or so. Well, and other news. Uh, the MIAA, which is the oldest conference in sports, or D3, one or the other. There's also an MIAA in D2. <laughs> That's true. We got you there, D2. That's a random fact that was stored in my head that I never thought I'd ever be able to use, and then you brought it up. Uh, indeed. We are all about the random facts on, uh, on this podcast, so it's good. We're also allegedly all about making up words, but I think so far we've managed to avoid that. our interview segment and this week our colleague uh, Stagpole sideline reporter and in the huddle co-host Frank Rossi was at the aforementioned St. Lawrence Merchant Marine game. He sent in this conversation with Saints coach Dan Pacaber. Coach I was reading down uh, during the game uh, the uh, scores that you've scored throughout the season. Eight points today. Most people would have thought if only eight points were scored by your team Merchant Marine would have won this game. Let's talk first about your defense and what they were able to do in this game. How proud are you of your defense? I mean with the defense coming in against the number one rushing team in the country uh, and shutting them out here uh, especially with how the offense really wasn't you know keeping them off the field or really helping them out much um, four shutouts in seven games. I mean it's everybody can say well it's who you played or people are doubting that defense but we got the best D tackle in the country uh, then you got one of the best middle linebackers and a great safety right up the middle uh, and then coach Valone and everybody else on the defense staff's doing a great job they came out competed we knew it was going to be like this especially in the weather but uh, you know they keep getting overlooked people think it's an eight nothing game they think it's going to be for them when we're the number one defense in the country so i'm still trying to figure that one out <laughs> there's a point in the game where you uh could have kicked a field goal down deep around the 10 yard line or so and said no we're going to go for it around a fourth and five situation what was going through your head during that point in the game when we're still i think at a zero zero score yeah i mean that's just a it's probably not the right call by me because it didn't work <laughs> um the good thing is that i know the defense has my back and uh right there it was a, a gut feeling uh, I didn't know what the wind was doing. We weren't really good in in warm-ups. But at the end of the day, if I look back, there's a lot of calls I made today that weren't good. But thankfully, uh, I got enough good players that when we make a bad call, they they bail us out. Sean's arm wasn't uh, the best asset he had today. It it seemed to be his legs, ultimately. Were you getting nervous about the way the offense was not necessarily converting? They would get a couple of big plays here and there, sure, but they just weren't converting until he scampers, what, about 70 yards down the field at one point for the touchdown? Yeah, I mean, that was just a uh, him being an athlete. Um, we knew with the way the weather was today, it, it, it didn't match up well with what we wanted to do throwing the ball. But you got to credit Kings Point's defense. They came out with a great game plan, um, and they performed it well. We couldn't complete a ball over 10 yards. So they loaded up the box, and uh, they, they gave it to us. And then, it, But at the end of the day, we told them at halftime, somebody's going to have an opportunity to make a play. And it just so happened that it was our, our guy. 
Hobart wins today. You're still in the collision course with them for the de facto uh, league championship game. Things could happen, obviously, between now and whenever, but obviously that's a huge game circled on everybody's calendar. Are you looking at that game? How are you looking at what's coming in front of you right now? Well, I mean, right now we got Union. Uh, Hobart's Hobart. It's it's our second to last game of the year. It's it, what everybody knows, but you know we could go into that Hobart game and and not need it. I mean, that could happen again. So. I hope not. Um, I hope that you know we go into that game and, and it's a it means something. But we got to take care of Union next week. Uh, that's that's the key. Uh, but Hobart's Hobart. They're they're the team. Uh, I think right now everybody else is circling, but our guys are looking at Union. Go enjoy today's win because obviously it was in doubt until the very final gun. It seemed like so. It, congratulations to you and enjoy it. Thanks, Frank. Thank you. Keith, we've already talked about this week's defensive performance by the Saints quite a bit. But Caber talked about the doubters and thoughts about who St. Lawrence has played in rolling up those four shutouts. And, and we've talked about it previously on this podcast. Does any of that look better now, uh, a little bit later in the season after we reevaluate? I've been doing this too long because I cringe at the unnamed doubters whenever they're brought up. Real or imagine these doubters. And if only more unsuccessful team had them and, and, and knew how to be motivated by them. I thought you just like printed something out and posted it on the bulletin board isn't that how isn't that exactly how you motivate a team man it's 2016 nobody prints anything out anymore um to actually answer the question i think it's possible to both be impressed by st lawrence and and say no it doesn't look any better after we reevaluate in fact it looks a little worse when we uh the the morrisville state shutout back in week one looked pretty impressive uh at the time because morrisville state had been a, a pretty good team the past couple of seasons and and they're still winless at this point. So uh, it actually looks a little worse after we reevaluate. But I still think four shutouts is enough to show us that this is a special defense, at least within Liberty League circles. It won't be until the Saints have to play the Empire 8 champion or the OAC runner-up, someone besides a New England champion or a MAC team from Pennsylvania. When that happens in the playoffs, that's when we'll find out if this is also a defense for the ages and a program that can really make some national noise like Hobart and further back RPI did uh, out of the Liberty League. Well, you heard it there, folks. A MAC team from Pennsylvania. So if it's Stevenson, you're good. But MAC teams from Pennsylvania, I'm sorry, apparently they don't count. I, I'm kidding, of course, uh, because, you know, the past. Um, I should mention we have tried several times to pick Mooresville State to get off the schneid and win its first game. Uh, you'll find out a little later in this podcast, a good reminder that we failed at that once again this week. And you can hear more of Frank Rossi's interviews from this game and, and full coverage of the Liberty League and the East Region on the In the Huddle podcast at inthehuddle.com. And remember, there's an extra L in huddle for Liberty or, or League or you know, something that begins with L. So uh, for my off-the-beaten-path highlight on a Saturday in which the Chicago Cubs did something they hadn't done in 71 years, Dominic Orsini ran for more yards than anyone in an Ohio Wesleyan uniform had done in 110 years. He ran for 252 yards and uh, threw for 242 as well as the battling bishops down to paw 37-14. He averaged more than 10 yards a carry. And in addition, I have to give some props to a man who has uh, long since left us, at, at least I assume. Uh, those 252 yards rushing were 28 yards short of the school record of 280 sent by, set by James Reich against Western Reserve on November 24th, 1906. Uh, that's Western Reserve before the merger with Case Tech. Uh, but of course, you know, back in 1906, rushing yards were still all the rage. That was the first year that the forward pass was even legal. Man, I'm impressed that you rolled the L in, in the huddle and, and you knew, you know, you got to drop your case in your Western Reserve, uh, useless knowledge in there. This has been a great podcast for useless knowledge. Woohoo! Off the beaten path, my highlight was uh, Ursinus finally held on to a one-touchdown lead late, but that's because it was a 31-3 lead at halftime on Susquehanna. The Bears came into Saturday's game 0-6 and finally made things go their way, recovering three Riverhawks fumbles. That's going to take some getting used to, Riverhawks oh, for, for Susquehanna. Yeah, yikes. Uh, they recovered three fumbles and intercepted a pass while not turning the ball over themselves. Thomas Garlic passed for 186 yards and ran for 101. Carmen Fortino had nine catches, and their sinus defense rackled up. Rackled? <laughs> There's your word. There you they, go. Rack, they racked up 10 tackles for losses. Uh, it takes a special kind of resolve. 
to not quit on the season when you're 0-6. And, uh, you know, maybe that pays off for the program later, either this season or further down the line. Uh, in any case, it's nice to finally see a team seven Saturdays into the season get a taste of joy. Let's see. Most surprising result for mine, I'm going to take on a game that probably wouldn't have been a surprising result if we had, you know, injury reports or maybe if it hadn't been a morning kickoff. And and that's uh, Wisconsin-Eau Claire beating lacrosse by the score of 20 to 14. Uh, we mentioned on the podcast last week that Tarek Yegi, which is uh, who's lacrosse's stud transfer quarterback from Division One Buffalo, had banged up his shoulder at the end of that loss to Whitewater. And without him, the Eagles are definitely a little more ordinary. That's of course that's the injury report part. The morning kickoff thing only comes into play because this game was basically almost over before even noticed that uh, Yegi wasn't playing. Uh, but this really has to take lacrosse out of any of the uh, fantasy at-large playoff running it might have been in. Um, and even if it wasn't, this was a win I had penciled in for lacrosse just to get them to six wins this season, let alone to the nine it would need to be a serious playoff contender. My most surprising result uh, was that Dubuque needed three overtimes to outlast two and five Buena Vista. Yeah. And part of which was probably due to the Beavers playing well, but part was probably a hangover from Dubuque's loss to Coe uh, the week before. At 7-1, there's still plenty for the Spartans to play for, but they fell behind 17-0 in this one. They went ahead with 11 minutes to go in the game, but still needed a field goal with eight seconds left to send it to overtime because the Beavers would not go away. And of course, in a three-overtime game, the moment it goes to regulation is just when the fun starts. Indeed. Uh, yeah, Spartans still have plenty to play for, as we were talking about teams uh, in the West region who uh, have uh, at-large playoff potential. We mentioned three teams, and we didn't mention Dubuque yet. If you're Dubuque, you want to root for St. John's to pick up an extra loss or uh, or Platteville to pick up an extra loss. Um, I'm not sure if Oshkosh picking up an extra loss necessarily helps uh, Dubuque. They might have to pick up two for Dubuque to pass them. But yeah, not completely uh, out of out of the woods. Let's go with that. All right, moving on. Uh, my stat of the week, uh, and I'm looking at the Hendricks Chicago game for this one. You know, Hendricks games, uh, we've talked about in the past, they're usually pretty ripe fodder for some pretty amazing offensive stats. But in this case, they accomplished them without quarterback Seth Peters, who was uh, apparently held out as a precaution after playing with a high fever last week. So instead, it was Miles Thompson, freshman, quarterbacking the Warriors offense to a whopping 760 yards in a 52-28 win versus the University of Chicago. So uh, Thompson also completed 32 of his 41 passes, that's 78%, and threw for 455 yards in the win. Uh, I'd guess, obviously, there's a few more games and uh, maybe some playoffs before this happens, but I'd guess that uh, Hendricks is going to transition to a new quarterback pretty well, just fine, Keith. Yeah, I mean, and that would keep with the theme of of explosive, amazing offense that's been been going on in in D three for the past several seasons, but certainly this year when there have been forty six thousand six hundred sixteen points scored, including six thousand two hundred seventy touchdowns, and uh, in one thousand. Uh, 713 games played through week eight. Uh, Division three teams average 27.2 points per game in this era of fast-paced offenses that put pressure on defenses to pick their poison. But we learned in week eight that defense is not a lost art. 11 teams put up shutouts and 27 more kept their opponent below 10 points. Um, In 117 games between 234 teams, almost one-third, 32.4% of those games, featured a team that played Great defense. Great defense as defined by kept its team be- uh, below 10. And, uh, you know, a week like that, a lot of times it can be uh, it's a weather phenomenon. In this case, it wasn't any of that on Saturday. And it just proved that uh, the great defense is still played in Division Three. There are a few, um, you know, we mentioned earlier the, the shutouts of the 11. Uh, there are a few other ones we should pull out. St. Lawrence, of course, had their fourth shutout of the season. Randolph-Macon put up its third against... Um, Oh, that was Catholic. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, man. I, I was impressed by Wesleyan, uh, which has played good defense all season. They did it against Amherst, which is known for its uh, unique and, uh, and and high-powered offense. They try to get a playoff. I think it's like every 14 seconds. It's something I, I forget. I forgot um, about that. That's right. Yeah, but so, you know, shutting out Amherst is, is not just shutting out any old NESCAC team. Um, and then some of the other shutouts, I guess, were a little bit more um, run-of-the-mill, but uh, Ithaca, we got to give them credit. They'd been the ones struggling on offense 
uh, for most of the season. Uh, in this case, they put up 34. Morrisville State put up zero. And Loris, wasn't it uh, before the season we thought Loris was going to have a great quarterback and a high-powered offense? Simpson shut Loris out on Saturday. Loris is winless as well. They had the, all that offense last year and uh, this year, yeah. And, and you know, while we're while we're at it, um, there are a couple, there are a bunch of near shutouts, including uh, Whitewater with the twenty-four to two win. That's pretty much a shutout for your defense, right? You yep. give up only a safety. Yep. Uh, there were a hand, uh, Eureka only gave up three. Handful of teams held their opponent to six. Uh, about a dozen held their uh, opponent to seven, including uh, Monmouth versus uh, Post. Michael Bates, Illinois College. Put that on the list of uh, of programs where a really good quarterback lifts the program up, and then it kind of slides back afterward. Uh, Chapman held Laverne to seven. Laverne scored fifty eight last week, was it? In that game we talked about in uh, off the beaten path highlights. Yeah. Held to, held to seven this week. Uh, Hobart won a twelve seven game, and uh, and McDaniel, which had, had struggled for a, a long time, uh, held their its opponent to uh, to seven. And then of course Merchant Marine. Held, uh, held St. Lawrence to eight. They just didn't score any points of their own. So a lot of great defense played uh, across the nation on Saturday and uh, and even on Friday night if you want to throw Johns Hopkins in the mix. But perhaps the best defense uh, played of, of everyone, and we mentioned this earlier, was uh, was Harden-Simmons in their loss because they became the first team to hold uh, Mary Harden-Baylor under 50 points, limiting the crew to just 300 yards of total offense. Uh, otherwise, if I don't say it here, we're not going to get an opportunity to mention it. We did mention it in the rundown, but of course, uh, uh, Mary Harden Baylor retired Jarrell Freeman's number. He wore number eight with the crew, and uh, you know, of course, that's the guy who's uh, currently playing in the NFL. Maybe, maybe right now, Division Three's best player in the NFL. Am I forgetting? I guess Ali Marpet is going to uh, is going to challenge me for that. You're going to tell me if Pierre Garcon still fits on the list. Yeah, I'd say Pierre's up there, but definitely um, Jarrell is uh, kind of an every, you know leader, heart of the defense. He's not playing for a very good team right now in the Chicago Bears, but still a guy who can who can rack up tackles. And the thing about him, I think, is that more so than Pierre um, or 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 Ali, is that you know those guys were blessed with kind of amazing physical gifts. And not to say that Jarrell Freeman uh, isn't, but he was a little bit more of a self-made. A uh, guy, you know, had to go play in the CFL after his uh, career at Mary Harden Baylor ended, and that's probably a more realistic route for many D three players to try to emulate, um, because it's something that you know, if you stick with it enough and you and you do improve uh, in your time in the CFL, you know, you can find a role in the NFL, and certainly. Um, when you watch the Bears and before that, when you watch the Colts defenses that Jarrell Freeman was on, he brings it. Time for us to take our medicine here on the Around the Nation podcast and uh, go through uh, the worst predictions from Quick Hits. That is our uh, Friday feature where uh, five of us regulars and then a guest take on some of the burning questions of the particular week. And, uh, and since this was a week that was light on top 25 uh, upsets, we were long on teams that missed. I missed pretty boldly. I took uh, Wisconsin-Whitewater in a week that the, it turned out their defense bent maybe just a little bit less and uh, picked off Kyle Larson, the Stevens Point quarterback, three times in a 24-2 win. Um, let's see, only one of the three games between ranked teams could be the closest on the scoreboard, and uh, none of the regulars got that one correct. And, and of course, uh, picking a winless team to pick up its first victory was a thankless job, and uh, five of us failed at that one as well. Well, luckily, there were some good predictions in quick hits. Uh all six of us picked a game that was worthy in one way or another of being a Game of the Week candidate. Derek Jones, the play-by-play man for Rowan Football and WGLS, was the only one who correctly saw that uh, Mary Harden-Baylor or Harden-Simmons would be the closest game between ranked teams. Five of us correctly picked a school beginning with A to win a game on Saturday. A. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know it was, it was E-H. Uh, we, they, they brought their A games uh, on Saturday, so to speak, in fitting with the quick hits question. And of course, kudos to Derek for going big with his pick of Averett to knock off Maryville uh, to no avail. Frank Rossi was the only one to correctly pick a winless team to win. He got the Finlandia over Maranatha Baptist win. And uh, Frank and Pat were the only ones who picked Salisbury and Frostburg to remain in the one overall loss club in the NJAC. 
before we move on to the two-minute drill, uh, there's one other thing I uh, wanted to talk about, Keith. Um, we heard of the passing uh, late last week of Tom Patterson. Tom Patterson, long time uh, known as the voice or longtime uh, play-by-play guy and broadcaster for Wisconsin Whitewater, a guy who did uh, a, a, a fan site covering Wisconsin Whitewater football uh, in an era where people were doing team fan sites. That era's kind of gone away a little bit, I guess. But uh, I, I tell you, you know, uh, we both saw Tom quite a bit, especially because, you know, Whitewater played a lot of games over the course of the past decade or so. And, uh, you know, he, he really brought uh, uh, brought a lot to that program, brought a lot of coverage to uh, Warhawk Athletics, but just a lot of genuine enthusiasm. That was the cool part about Tom, too, is that he saw or foresaw all of this happening for for Wisconsin Whitewater before they were a a year in year out national championship caliber program. We got to know him along the way, but it started I think a little bit before they were an every year Stag Bowl Final Four type of team. And uh, his enthusiasm was a big reason why. You ask Coach Berezowitz and and, and Coach Leipold after him uh, what kind of role Tom played in all that, and and it it was making it Whitewater feel like a destination, a place to be, a place you wanted to play, a place where you, if you went there, you know, you were loved or you felt like you belonged uh, as part of a community. And I think that's something that is prob- probably happens more often than we know across D3. There are, there are guys who are like Tom Patterson to many different programs, people who give of themselves just for the good of the program and don't expect anything back in return. Um, but Tom was one of a kind in, in the sense that he he just had a um I, I think you said it i think the genuine enthusiasm the, the 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 touch for making you feel like you know to borrow a phrase really you know he, he made the big time where he was he made whitewater feel like the most important place on earth for you know whatever um portion of time you were there and we always felt welcome when he was around and and um you know, when you think about what kind of person you want to be and you the way you want to be remembered as after you pass on, I think Tom is someone that I would look to because he um, he gave of himself. He made somewhere his little corner on earth. He made it a better place. He made people feel better about themselves. And it's simple. You know, football is not life and death. But as simple as that was within that sphere he really made it um he just gave of himself and i don't think he ever asked for anything back and to see um to see his joy when whitewater would win especially down in salem it you know it made me feel happy for them too because because here was somebody who just gave and gave and gave and, and finally he got to get something back well there's not much i can follow that with so i think we're just going to go straight into the- your two-minute drill begins now and uh, we'll start it off by, uh, of course, hitting the start button on the timer and mentioning that uh, Linfield clinched its 61st consecutive winning season on Saturday. They improved to 5-1 on the season by defeating Whitworth by the score of 45-31. An annual tra- tradition like no other, mentioning the Linfield streak. Um, here's a not streak. Finlandia, as, uh, as we mentioned with Frank, beat Maranatha Baptist 27-22 on Saturday. The second-year Lions now have four wins in program history. Three over Maranatha Baptist and one against Trinity Bible. Yeah, go FU. McDaniel has always been a unique place to play and an interesting draw. And uh, this year, with maybe just a slightly greater reason to be optimistic than in recent seasons, they counted 6,872 fans in attendance on Saturday. Uh, that win that uh, Keith mentioned before, they beat Dickinson 14-7, to and that was on homecoming. Curry won its second consecutive shootout, this one 42-41 against Maine Maritime a week after winning 56-54 against Coast Guard. Yeah, I I looked at that and I thought you said shutout because we'd had so many shutouts, and that is not at all the case. That's a shootout. Let's see, number one in the NCAA Division three strength of schedule stats. Might not be a surprise if you think about it. That belongs to North Carolina Wesleyan, 3-3, three and three, but their opponents, well, they opened the season with Stevenson and Mount Union. Uh, so, uh yeah, that uh, those are the two of the six games they've played so far, really boosting that number. Worst strength of schedule for an unbeaten team belongs to Case Western Reserve, 223rd out of 237 eligible teams. I, I guess based on what we said, uh, what we read earlier, Keith, we have to blame Case and not Western Reserve. 
<laughs> while keeping within the UAA or former UAA. Um, Larry Kinbaum of Wash U and Rich Lackner of Carnegie Mellon each got their 200th win on Saturday, and we should uh, tip the cap to both of those guys who've been they've been at it for quite a long time at their respective schools. And now the uh, the all-time winningest uh, uh, active coaches list in D3 certainly looks a lot different um, now that Larry Karras and John Gallardi aren't at the top of it. Uh, Rick Giancola, Montclair State, 234. Mike Drass, 214. And uh, coming up on 200 pretty soon, uh, number nine on the list will be uh, Fredenberg, Pete Fredenberg at uh, Mary Harden-Baylor, 188. All right, we're not going to get to talk about uh, the D3 Baseball World Series leaving Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and whether that would ever happen with football in Salem, but I, I think that's not very likely. Keith, uh, talk, uh, talk us through what's coming up in Week 9. Yeah, there's not a whole lot going on in the top 25 after a really, really good month, I guess, of of top 10, top 25 clashes, but there's that NJAC race. There's still five teams in the mix. Four of them are, are in action against each other next week. Rowan is at Frostburg State. Uh, Salisbury is at Christopher Newport. Um, likewise, the Empire 8, huge game every week because almost all the teams in the Empire 8 are in the mix. Uh, Brockport at Alfred, though. Brockport with a big win uh, over Cortland on Saturday, 21-19. They play Alfred, which is still unbeaten. Uh, that'll be a big one in Week 9. Uh, Franklin at Mount St. Joseph in the Heartland. We mentioned Denison at DePaul. Not not quite as big as it would have been if DePaul hadn't lost on Saturday. And then uh, Middlebury at Trinity in the SCAC. In the SCAC. In the end, the NESCAC. Uh, both of those teams are 5-0. and SCAC, we call the SCAC. SAA, there's no other good way to say that. Uh, IIAC, nobody says IAC, and nobody says IIAC, and we just all say Iowa Conference, uh, CCIW, yeah, yeah, you and you and I have talked about people who say ODAC instead of ODAC. I just, just like, I'm, that's like saying I'm an outsider, I don't actually belong here, so that's why I was, that's, I think that's why we gave so much attention to the WIAC, WIAC thing, because you're like, have we been doing this wrong all this time, but luckily you were, uh, you were at a, uh, a WIAC game on Saturday, and they referred to it as a WIAC game. Correctly, I might add. <laughs> Three weeks in a row I've been at a WIAC game. I'm going to try to stay on this side of the St. Croix River this time around. Uh, and this was Around the Nation podcast number 159 for the week of October 24th, 2016. Thanks for listening, and uh, tune in for the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it, and that will help other football fans find it. And thanks for following Division Three Football on D3Football.com. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Thanks to Frank Rossi and his guest, St. Lawrence coach Dan Pacaver, for their time on this edition of our show. And, of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. Catch us every week from now through December 19th, then monthly in the offseason. And always remember to use the D3FB hashtag on your tweets and Instagram posts. And I don't know if you'll be able to live track my uh, reason I'm not going to be in Wisconsin next Saturday. I will be running the Monster Dash Half Marathon over in St. Paul starting at an ungodly hour central time, ungodly minus one eastern time. You might be able to find me. I'll, I'll probably post my bib number somewhere on the internet and laugh at how slowly I run over there. I didn't know if that was aimed at me or the, uh, the general listening public. No, the, the listening public at large. Enjoy. Making fun of Pat. That's what I do.